0: With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech.
1: At
2: Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Donna Coriel, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast.
2: When passion meets talent. This was written on Sunday, December 7th, 2008. There is a moment in some people's lives where God given talent and passion mesh to create something beautiful and unique. Those who are lucky enough to experience this rare gift have a special power the power to change the world. I was born thinking medicine was my passion from the earliest ages I can remember wanting to be a doctor. I have no idea where it came from, I have no idea how it grew, but it was my goal, it was my dream. Most of my waking moments were consumed by it. It didn't matter that I had a learning disability. It didn't matter that I almost had to stay back a grade. All hurdles were temporary, all surpassable. And so I spent my youth on this goal. I expended countless sums of money, studied for hours without reprieve, worked excessively long shifts without sleep. I did whatever it took. And I succeeded. I finished medical school and residency and began living my dream. But something was missing. Maybe it was the paperwork. Maybe the sadness of watching people die and being helpless. Maybe the anger so commonly directed towards physicians, which often felt unjustified. Being a physician no longer ignited me, no longer set my heart on fire, but something did. Strangely and unexpectedly, it was writing. First poetry and then stories. It would wake me up in the middle of the night and force me to turn on the light and jot down a word or phrase so that I wouldn't forget it in the morning. And I was happy at least sort of. Friday was a perfect example. In the morning, waiting for me in my in-basket were rejections from four publications refusing my poetry. They all came on the same day. I can't say it was unexpected. Anyone who has submitted poetry for consideration knows that rejection is just part of the process. You have to develop a thick skin, they say. So I was down as I made my way to the hospital. One of my partner's patients had been in and out of the inpatient service for months. She was a mystery. Several hospitalizations and specialists and CAT scans later, my partner still wasn't sure what to do with her. As I reviewed the data and finished my examination, everything clicked. I knew that I caught something that everyone else had missed. So I made a few changes and added a key medication, and within 24 hours, she was better. It might take some time, but I know she will recover. On my way home yesterday, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I always say that each person has a gift, and if we are lucky, we find it while there is still time to act. For years, I've been searching for my gift. I was hoping it would be poetry. In reality, it isn't. It's medicine. Medicine is the one thing I'm truly gifted at. Medicine is what I was meant to spend my life doing. I'm the luckiest man on the earth. I have a wonderful wife and children. I have a job and enough money to live, and now I have found my calling, my one offering to humanity. But sadly, somewhere in the process after all those years of yearning and striving and working, I've lost my passion for it. Gift and passion, passion and gift. Somehow they've missed each other so far in my life. But what if, what if for just a moment I could realign them again? Oh, the things I could accomplish. Donna Coriel is an internal medicine physician, a creator of the Doctors on Social Media platform, SoMe, which includes a blog and a Facebook group. I connect with Donna's stories in so many ways. One, we both decided to stop practicing clinical medicine, and the other is we're both interested in content creation. So first and foremost, Donna, welcome to the Earn and Invest podcast.
0: Well, thank you so much. This is actually an interesting time to introduce me because you just read a few excerpts to me from your work, and I actually got emotional listening to it, just in all honesty. So I'm still emotional just thinking about the things you said.
2: You know, it's an interesting story. I look back at my life and I was so convinced for so long that being a doctor was the thing that I was meant to be. My father was a physician and he died suddenly when I was eight years old. And I remember at that time thinking this was my passion in life and it was the thing I was going to do. And one of the reasons I connect so much with you is you and I traveled that similar path of going into internal medicine. I was a primary care physician, and at some point we decided that practicing medicine itself wasn't fulfilling us completely. So I want to start with you back at the beginning of your story. I know I came to this idea of being a doctor even before I can remember. Do you remember how old were you when you decided that medicine was your pathway?
0: I don't, and it's funny that it keeps coming up. People really are fascinated by that question, and I think Many doctors can actually pinpoint the exact age, but I cannot. I can tell you that overall, I always valued helping people and feeling like I was needed. And I I have a lot of theories behind it. Part of that is being an immigrant and feeling always left out. And as an outsider, I think I just, I'm different. I think differently. I'm a lot more out of the box than your ordinary, not just physician, but human being. Again, a lot of what you said just resonated with me and hit me because you're very similar to me in a way that I never realized until now. And so, yeah, it's just this overall feeling of wanting to people to identify and hear at least to identify with my, not just strengths, but the ways that I've found. To cope with life and to be happy in life because I think that ultimately that's what we're here for on earth It's not to necessarily be a doctor. It's to literally impact people's lives and for that reason I don't think that I've wasted my time earning my degree I think my degree afforded me the ability to think through things that I would not have otherwise been able to think through if I did not Have those little two letters behind my name
2: It's an interesting conversation because most of us go into medicine for passion. I know I certainly did. At some point, you start realizing that a small percentage of us, we still have all that passion, but medicine might not be fulfilling it. When you were in college or in medical school, did you start to see the cracks like I did in residency? That was when I realized, okay, I'm really passionate about medicine, but something doesn't feel right here. When did that happen to you or did it happen to you?
0: Wow. What a great question. You know, I think I have to distinguish between a crack of just feeling pressure and overwhelmed, which I could interpret as a crack, right? Versus the crack of, holy shit, like something else really speaks to me in life. Now that latter part is what I think you're going for. And Absolutely, there was a time. And that was when I took a break from medicine, actually, when I had my third son and I took a break to be with my kids. I had this sudden realization that I that that there was much more to this world suddenly that I just had never had time to discover or just had never taken time to discover. And when I was actually given the time, I was afforded the time because of that break. I suddenly realized that I was not only good at more things than just medicine, but that they were actually bringing me more happiness than medicine was.
2: Yeah. I call that a trigger event. And I know I had a few in my career. One of those trigger events I remember is the birth of my son. So I think for a lot of us having children maybe helps us reframe. You mentioned your third child. Where were you in your career at that point?
0: I had been with my third son. I was already in attending. I was working at the uh, Mount Sinai World Trade Center monitoring program And, you know, I had had a journey through life that was not as conventional because I had children relatively young. My husband and I were dual physicians and we had our our first son when I was an intern. So I think that shaped my path in medicine as well in that I didn't go through that rigorous training just single or not with other worries. I had the added stressors of being a mom. So I think that probably helped to shape certain things in my life. But yeah, I've had many trigger events, some of which are I'm extremely open with and others that I'm not. I think even though you're a public figure on social media, sometimes you don't have to necessarily share everything that triggers you. But I've certainly had my fair share of triggers that have helped me to solidify that this is absolutely the rightful place for me in life.
2: One of my main triggers was I received a book in the mail to review for my medical blog from Jim Dolly, the White Coat Investor. And after reading it, I realized that financially, I was stable enough to leave medicine. And that was a major trigger for me because I realized that my financial well-being didn't necessarily rely on that job. But it took a long time for me to mentally... Line up my emotions to go from having that knowledge to making a move. You mentioned when you stayed home with your third child, did you immediately decide, okay, I'm going to transition a path away from clinical practice or did it take time?
0: Absolutely not. Um, What happened was that I fell in love with certain aspects I never knew existed and that I never knew I was talented in, and I shaped it and got better at them then I, for whatever reason, not just not to make this too complicated, I got convinced to go back into medicine into practice, because I honestly there, I'm drawn to it, I'm drawn to that human connection. But in doing that, I vowed to never let go of this, like extra artsy self that I had learned to develop and that I was talented in. And so I was convinced to somehow find a way to mesh those two together. And so I did. I just, I went back to practice and I just kept creating and finding new things and finding new sources of happiness until the point where, and this took many years, understand that I fought to stay in medicine until I recognized that it is not possible to be a human being that is passionate about the human connection and stay practicing in a field that stifles that passion, if that makes sense. Like just because I'm in it and I've earned the degree doesn't mean I am forced to do something that I feel is not right, is not nurturing my talents and my abilities. And instead, I was going to define that path using the experience I've had and the degrees that I've earned.
2: Non-physicians or healthcare workers don't often realize that when you go practice medicine, as opposed to feeling like a compassionate care taker and healer, the thing that we all kind of look forward to, in a lot of ways, you start feeling very siloed and apart. And so like you, I did the same thing. I kept on trying to do the artsy stuff on the side, right? So I would go to practice and then I'd spend an hour writing down a quick blog post or I would develop a talk. And while the rest of my physicians were going and talking about metabolic pathways, I would give an impassioned talk about patient care and why we need to tell our stories so I, you and I, again, I feel this connection that you probably were doing exactly what I was, which is this two-step of trying to still be that clinical doctor and yet this other part calling to you.
0: I, I'm honestly like, I'm getting really emotional just talking to you. That's, yeah, you're, everything you say resonates. Like every single word coming out of your mouth is me, just in your human body. So yeah, the human connection is what truly matters to me. And- connecting with humans takes more than just doling out medicine. And I'm not going to speak about the broken healthcare system. I'm just going to say that in a 15 minute or 20 minute appointment, you cannot connect on a level that you can connect with when you write a blog post or you speak in a podcast or you say things that reaches millions of people or hundreds of thousands, or even one person that your message resonates with. So for me, human connection is my gift and I would like to find a way to impact people. And you're nodding as I say this, so I know you get it. Like, for me, it's human connection. And I just need to redefine human connection in a way that's outside of the, the box of healthcare, because I will not fit into a box. And with all the good intentions of hospital systems, of administrators, of anybody that hires me, with all their good intentions, They still are not me and if they don't see my vision and don't understand my good intentions, then I cannot live to my full potential. And I just wanna expound a little bit on what you said because I love that you talked about Jim Dahl's sort of financial well-being and being comfortable to leave medicine. I wanna tweak that for a second and look at it in a different angle because for me, leaving medicine meant leaving behind a nice salary. And something stable. And I was literally leaving it for the unknown, for something I that is extremely unexplored. And yet I made that decision and I decided to take it on because I realized that life is worth more than staying in a field where you are unhappy for whatever reason. I am in charge of my life. And sometimes that takes re-angling where you're not even always financially comfortable doing it. But maybe it takes me just redefining what comfort level is or where I want to live on what financial level I want to live, if that makes sense. And this is something that my husband and I speak about a lot because we sort of differ. He's a lot more conservative. He wants to make sure that we're stable. And so am I. But at the same time, I always say like, at what cost? How many gray hairs... Do we need to have in order to be happy? And that's something that everybody listening should really think about. Not to say you should quit tomorrow, not to say that you should reconsider, but if you are unhappy for any reason, think about the possibility of changing that even in the little steps and allowing yourself to be that just that much happier
2: you talk about being someone who doesn't really live very well in the box. One of the biggest problems people have with making these changes is the expectations of those people around them. You mentioned your husband is conservative. How did your family, friends, and colleagues react to this idea that maybe after putting all this time into becoming a physician, you were making a decision that was a little bit contradictory to who they are as people, especially your colleagues?
0: Wow. Expectation is such a powerful word. When you say that to me, it conjures up so much, not only so many images, but so much emotion surrounding that. So yeah, when I did this, I was really defying the standards of the norm. And so yeah, I really... Kicked expectations to the curb and I really threw a loop in there for my friends and family. So, yeah, it was extremely difficult for people that knew me to accept, even until today. Now, my successes helped me to redefine that right to redefine expectations because now suddenly people are embracing certain things that i'm doing whereas they never have and the question sometimes to me is like what did it take for you to accept it the fact that i'm making money the fact that i have such a large following the fact that i'm influencing the fact that i'm you know written in or going to speak at like harvard writers every year like what to you defines it. Because I know to me, I didn't need all those things. I believed in myself and my need for happiness. And so that's an important point to make is like your definitions of what works for you in life and what makes you happy. And do we really want to define it by meeting the expectations of other people? Because I refuse to live based on others' expectations. And honestly, I think a lot of people didn't get me. And I think a lot of people still don't get me. And I think it'll take time for people to really get what I'm doing. But I do believe that at some point in the future, and I hope that this will happen is they will get it because they see that I am paving the path to something that has not yet been paved.
2: So let's talk a little bit about people not getting what you're doing. When I left clinical medicine, a big part of what I was doing, I had trouble explaining. What I tell people is I'm going to work on being a communicator. And what that meant to me was writing and blogging and public speaking. I want to use your own words here from your blog. You said, I want to explain the world through a different lens, focus on content creation. What exactly does that mean? What what do you mean by focus on content creation?
0: What I mean is that... I think that I have a gift in the arts and part of that is in the art of communication. I think that you can communicate through so many ways, right? So we're used to that traditional way of being a physician and communicating with patients through actual verbal communication. We used to think that it was physical. Now we're innovating by saying, well, now you can actually do it virtually and actually make a meaningful connection, right? But you can also make the connection through other ways, through nonverbal ways. So content for me is about connection and about communicating that connection through different means. For me, I look for different ways of creating content and connecting. So whether it's a video I make, or it's through a, an Instagram post that I put together, or it's the words in that Instagram post. What I really love about every single platform is that every platform is so unique and that even a post within one platform has so many different angles to it. So I'll give an example, right? Instagram, like at face value can just seem like a place where you have your photos congregated. But if you actually dissect it, it could be so much more. It could be a place where I can express myself through my photo so I can sort of edit my photo and make it shine. I can also express myself through that photo by like putting a message in there that's a little bit less face value than what you see. And then there's a space underneath where I can write content so I can express myself that way, yet another angle. And then there's hashtags, which can help me to express myself too. And then there's people that I tag in it. And then there's adding that post to the story, which is yet another way of expressing yourself. So that's the beauty of social media platforms and exploring it through a new lens is just how can I express myself in new ways? How can I create differently? And then how can I connect with an audience that my message resonates with?
2: When we talk about social media, what we're really talking about is virtual media. Was there ever an interest in doing more physical media outside of this virtual world? Were you interested in creating there? Or did you know from the outset that there was going to be kind of this social media community building type process?
0: I didn't at all. I am just... I consider myself a good communicator, so I think that I've explored other types of communicating and they have involved real-life physical communication. I mean, I'm someone who loves games, for example, so I will have families over pre-COVID and host a game to just do things differently, to give people that experience. I'm also someone who has considered sort of opening up centers where I facilitate connection and communication more. So, yeah, I think through a lot of different mediums for connecting, and it has not always been just the virtual online world. It's just I feel like I can, first of all, reach more people through a virtual world, and I can also sort of create more and have it sent out to more platforms than one. Like, my one single piece of content can be exponential in its reach if I use many different. Platforms And it can also help me to massage my content by adhering to different platforms, ways of posting, if that makes sense.
2: Up until this point, we've really talked about how creating has nurtured you, but your content and your platform certainly suggests that it's something that's very important for physicians and maybe eventually we'll broaden out the conversation to non-physicians, but right now for physicians a big part of your content is telling us or showing us how important social media is for physicians. Why is that so?
0: It is. And you know what, for me, it's part of the problem is that I recognize that an effective social media presence needs immense focus and for me i've had a hard time to focusing and it's not because i can't focus it's because i want to do so much and i have so much to give so there's one thing that i focus on which is my personal brand and there's so much to give there because i create based on my life but then there's so much to give physicians which is to then teach them this gift and how do they do that themselves and I've taken on a lot, like I've taken on a lot. And so I have two brands growing that are both in parallel and intersect because I want to express myself while still teaching physicians how to do that and giving them a space in which to connect and grow themselves. And again, that's the different brands. Dr. Coriel being my personal brand and SoMeDocs, which stands for doctors on social media, being the other brand where doctors can sort of, again, connect and learn how to do this themselves.
2: Do doctors need to be coached? I mean, isn't some of this
0: intuitive? I think some of it is intuitive, but coaching really helps you to really think through different. Options and different steps, and maybe strategizing and getting to your endpoint a little quicker because someone has done it before or someone can just think differently. And so, that word coaching is very interesting because I definitely consider myself a coach, although it's not the traditional sense of what we think of a coach. Like right now, the hot thing is to be a life coach. Well, that's essentially what you are as a doctor. I mean, there's definitely more honing in when you take a class. And I really respect that. I love that. But I consider myself, I call myself a social media coach, right? Because I haven't had any training in life coaching. But you know what? I've had training in medical school and I've had training seeing patients and really learning to hone in on what helps me to connect. And so my coaching is in social media, but I also connect really well with people. So that makes me just that much better as a social media coach, right? I can help you to understand your vision, to help to sharpen it, to help you create your brand. And then I know how to maneuver through social media and create content and do all of that fancy stuff. And so we can then curate a pathway together.
2: Walk me through that a little more. So I'm a physician. I'm working on building a brand. I come to you and say, help. What type of steps, you know, broadly speaking, do you take them through?
0: Yeah, definitely broadly speaking, because this is extremely nuanced and has a lot of pointers. And I honestly don't think that it's a one size fits all. Everyone's got their own branding pathway to take. And you'd want that, right? Because you want to stand out. You don't want to do the same thing as someone else. It takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of looking at others. It takes a lot of introspection. And then it takes just going for it. It's a combination of like, just do it and don't just do it because you want to really shine and do it the right way. So uh, that's where a social media coach can really help. And so there is a process where physician branding starts. It starts with physician brand. What is your brand? How do you want to be known as? What is your endpoint goal? What is your handle? There are rules to taking out a handle, right? Because you're literally taking out real estate where handles are concerned. Because if I want to be Dr. Coriel, if if you want to be Dr. Coriel, well, you can't be Dr. Coriel because Dr. Coriel's taken. And so those are steps that are important in branding. If you're Dr. Coriel on one platform, you should be Dr. Coriel on another platform. Again, very nuanced, so it's taking that branding approach. How do I define my brand and then once you've defined your brand, it's actually figuring out what your endpoint goal is because if you don't know what you're going for, then you can't lay out the steps to getting there. but then it's understanding social media platforms, the one oh ones of everything, and like just very quick pointers as to how to use them because. You may need to start out with just one platform. And so you need to know what resonates most with you. You want to tackle a platform that makes you happy. Otherwise, it's work. And then it's defining those steps to getting to your endpoint goal. And then it's implementation. And right there, we've defined the first four weeks of my upcoming masterclass, which is a beta masterclass. It's actually the first one. But I have taken so many years to debut this masterclass that I really feel prepared to help doctors. And I'm doing that in a group setting. So those are the four weeks to sort of just getting a clearer picture on your brand.
2: You and I are both physicians, but a lot of people listening to us right now are not. Are these skills physician specific? I mean, it would seem to me that a lot of what you teach probably would be valuable for non-physicians, other professionals, et cetera.
0: They are absolutely not limited to physicians. I think what really sets me apart is just that I am a physician and I have done it. And so that, to me, I feel like it would attract physicians as a client base. I could absolutely coach anybody on doing this because I think that I've got it pat down and I do it well. Again, I think what really speaks to physicians is just that I, I know the lingo and I can help in so many more ways than just coaching you through a social media platform. And, and for that reason, that's why yet another service that I have is a consultation service, whether it's one-on-one, one-on-one, or a package. And also it's just content creation packages where I help you to actually make the content. Because at the end of the day, some physicians actually are passionate about seeing patients and they've defined their life in a way where it works for them. Maybe because you do it concierge or you define your time with your patient or you're your own boss, but you want someone that excels in the social media space, but also understands you as a physician. So that's where that option lies.
2: It brings up an important question to me. You know, one of the things that people used to say back in the early 2000s about physicians and social media is, hey, you know, they're doctors. They should be spending their time treating patients, not fiddling around on the computer. And even for the broader population, does everyone really need a brand? I mean, do we all really have to have a social media presence?
0: You don't have to do anything. First of all, I'm a big believer in doing you, right? Because that's, for me, like I've always stood out and I figured my life out. And if you stand out, it's okay. So don't feel pressured to do anything. Absolutely not. Do you need a brand? I, don't, I think everybody should absolutely consider branding themselves if for anything, then it's to occupy that space, that real estate that someone else can occupy. Meaning you want to own Dr. Coriel if that's the brand you want. Listen, I could own at the end of the day, I could own Donna Coriel, I could own Donna Coriel MD, I can own Donna Coriel and Dr. Donna Coriel. I can own everything, but things cost money and things take time. And Some of the social media guidelines tell you to, for example, take out all those URLs and own them because it's not that expensive and you want to make sure no one really does that. But you can't own everything. And that's why branding is so important that you want to at least own the name for which you want to build something on. And so that's why for me, like I haven't, I haven't rebranded, even though I've left medicine, I'm still keeping Dr. Coriel because first of all, I'm always going to be Dr. Coriel because I earned that degree, but also everybody knows me already as Dr. Coriel. So I'm not going to now change it because I have all that traction and it's almost like name recognition based on content. So it's just not worth it for me to rebrand. But those are the thought processes behind whether everybody should consider branding. And the short end of that is, yes, you don't have to, but you should absolutely consider it.
2: This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. com. That's landroverusa.com. I feel like we've taken this conversation in two parallel directions. And so I want to start with the first and then I'll move to the second. The first is the story of someone who, like me, was involved in medicine and decided to transition their life. There are many people right here with us that have contemplated leaving a job they feel so-so at, for a passion or an ability that they haven't developed, what is the first step? How do you break away, especially when you're maybe bogged down in other people's expectations of who you are?
0: Wow, that's a great question. There's a lot of self-reflection that goes into that. There's a lot of pushing external factors to the side, even the external factors that matter the world to you you need to really sort of make mental lists of the goods and the bads. You need to start thinking through like, what is the ultimate sacrifice of remaining in something that I'm just unhappy about? You need to really be sure that it is something that you're unhappy with. And most importantly, you need to really be sure that what you're trading your current lifestyle for is something that you will be happy in. Because there's, it's, it's not like you're going to trade your job, your current job for, for like something that, for stardom, for immediate stardom, right? Or for immediate, whatever endpoint goal you want. Because for me, stardom is actually not the endpoint goal. For me, it's just personal happiness, whatever that means. And I'm constantly tweaking that. You have to really be sure that you are going to leave your current job for something that really gives you happiness because it might mean not having money for a few years. Or like you've said, it might mean that you are financially stable to be able to leave. Or maybe it means that you've got to just redefine what fi- financial stability is and maybe you need to lower your means of life or means of living. So those are factors that everybody needs to consider. It involves a lot of introspection. It involves a lot of mental lists that you need to go through to make sure that they are all checked off before you make such a big decision. And whether or not this is related, I want to say something because I think this brings up an article I wrote for Medscape. They saw that I had left and they reached out and they said, can you write for us? And I said, sure. And I wrote to them why I left and they didn't want what I wrote because it was so technical and so sort of already done, been there, done that. They weren't interested in why I left and all the technical like EHR system, the insurance system, the admins. It was, how did your fam- friends and family feel about it? Which was interesting because you asked me that. And I said, great. Cause I love to write and I wrote it and I had so many physicians reaching out in support. And I was so overwhelmed. And yet there were so many nasty and negative comments under my article. And I felt taken aback. And to this day, I still want to take each and every comment and address them. Because I can say something to each and every comment on that page. And those include things like, A, Medscape asked me to write this. So for the people that said to me, well, what do I care how your friends and family feel? Someone said to me, your husband should be ashamed. Do you know me? Do you know our situation? Let's take seven steps back and think to ourselves how you're making a judgment call based on a thousand word article, right? You don't know what I've been through, who I am. There's no three dimensionality and contextuality to my words. How can you write such mean things on a page? And you're a physician. Let's take seven steps back and let's really reevaluate who we are in this life and what connection we make with people and how we can embrace that people just can impact in different ways. And so, again, I'm not going to answer everything on here, but I just want to make the statement that you do you and you be proud of your story. They will be haters. But when the haters come out, it just means that you've touched a nerve and you're actually doing something that means something. Usually, not always, but many times.
2: Yeah, what I've found in my own life is that when you get vehement disagreement with something you do and that thing you do is not impacting anyone adversely, mostly it says more about them than it says about you. And in this case, it says that watching you do something that was scary and difficult made them feel bad and probably made them feel bad about themselves and probably had very little to do with you. And I understand that because there are a lot of people right now trapped in jobs that do not make their soul sing. And yet they don't have the courage, ability, or economic wherewithal to leave them.
0: And this is what I'm going to add to the really smart thing that you just said. and, And something that I so love that you phrased it this way, because We hear about that a lot just in life, right? People aren't happy with their jobs. That's a common thing, I think, in this world. But until today, we haven't really heard about this from doctors. And that is what sets us apart. That is why I think it garners so much shock from people and gets so much negative responses. A, because not everyone is unhappy. And I get that. If you're not unhappy, more power to you. I want you to be happy in life. But understand that there are people that are not happy. Maybe it's because we're in different fields. Maybe it's because we've had different experiences. Maybe we've had different demands placed on ourselves. But let's keep an open mind. But the point is that the world is changing and the demands on doctors are changing. And you see that based on numbers. Like I'm not just saying that. I'm actually saying that because burnout is at an increasing trajectory. Like it's it's going up and up. It's passing 50% in terms of the number of physicians that are feeling burnt out and guess what that's going to have an impact that's going to translate into more unhappiness and more people tuning into your program to see what Donna Coriel has to say about leaving medicine because guess what you may like look at me and say how did how dare she do that or why did she do that but you're going to see more and more interest in people like me who are trying to do things differently and in reshaping what it means to be a doctor and how you can help the world by being a medical doctor.
2: Yeah, The term is disloyalty. Hiding shame, especially on a much bigger level, requires loyalty. And it requires people to buy into the status quo. So we as physicians have gone through some very difficult times, whether you call it burnout or all the other terms that we're using right right now, moral injury, et cetera. But the truth of the matter is, I think there are a lot of physicians out there that feel shame for lots and lots of reasons. And when you become disloyal to the party line that this is our job and this is our burden to care and this is who we're supposed to be, it really causes anger and backlash because you all of a sudden have left the team. You are no longer being loyal to the party line that is making it okay for them to stay in this shameful position. And so it's really hard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There is nothing more infuriating than having judgment cast upon you when someone has a life situation or a work situation in which they're happy and looking at you and your life situation being unhappy and leaving it and then casting judgment on it. There's nothing that infuriates me more than that. And there's nothing that infuriates me more than having someone say that it's a privilege to be where I am and how I am turning my back against a profession in which I I should be thankful for. It bothers me because it's almost like perpetuating this state, which I think doesn't work, and makes it okay to be abused in a sense by saying that I should be okay taking it. Hells no. No. Should you feel good in an abusive relationship? Would you say this to a woman who is abused in a relationship? Should you say she should be thankful that the man has her? No. The system should be thankful that I am putting my love into it and my talent into it, and they should embrace it and want me to be happy. Something is not working. It is not just me that's unhappy. It's not because I'm spoiled. If I start to tell you how much of my life I've sacrificed to have earned this medical degree, I know people don't want to hear it, but it's true. I only started to get out there and make my living at 30-something, and that's after a world of debt and a world of missed opportunities during which my friends and family were able to build things that I couldn't because I was stuck in my room studying for that exam or I was stressed doing X, Y, and Z. Like Nobody really takes that into account. They only look at the tip of your iceberg. They don't look at any of what's below, at all of the hard-earned, at all of the years we have spent earning our place here. And then they immediately call us privileged, right? Like, I, I'm not privileged. I've earned my place here. And it doesn't even matter what my background is. It doesn't, it, And I will throw it in there because my background is an immigrant. I was an immigrant at age 10 I, 10. I came to America. Nothing was handed down to me. Nothing. My parents are amazing. They instilled hard work in me but nothing was handed to me. I didn't have it easy. right? I needed to learn English in a classroom at age 10. I was lonely. But I've learned to push that back and really like create something out of my talents. But I am not privileged. I worked hard to be here. I worked hard to earn a degree despite all of the barriers that stood in my way. And I guarantee that everybody that is listening will, it resonates with them. And it doesn't matter if you're a doctor or not. Everybody works hard to be where they are. And it's not usually from a place of privilege. Privilege is just when you're handed something for nothing, for no work. I wasn't handed something for no work. I worked hard to get here. And now it's not working for me for a reason. I'm going to stop there because I could go on and on about how the healthcare system is broken, but I'm, I'm passionate about this. And I Use that to justify why I left to myself because of what you said, because at the end of the day, it boils down to leaving a profession in which patients need us. It's more about the patients that I leave behind. That's what is the hardest thing for me is that I feel terrible for the patients and I am a patient and so is my family. So we are going to suffer too because more and more physicians are going to leave it.
2: I definitely agree. And there's always this constant conversation in most physicians' mind of the public good versus personal good. You and I both realized that patient care was not fulfilling our soul's needs and that we needed to move in a different direction.
0: But can I interrupt you there? I didn't leave just because I wasn't happy. I actually stayed longer than I would have if... I had left when I first realized I wasn't happy. I gave it a long number of years being unhappy. I stayed for the patients. But it's leaving because I actually felt like it was doing a disservice to my patients for me to leave because I wasn't able to practice the way that sh- should be practiced. That's a key point to make. Meaning I left clinical care because I couldn't practice in the way that I thought was the fairest way for my patients. I couldn't offer them the best treatments in a 10 minute visit. And I couldn't offer it to them with an EHR, with staring at the computer, with an electronic health record. I couldn't do it because it wasn't feasible for me to call everybody back that was calling with questions. And yet I wanted to, but my day didn't couldn't do it because I was squeezed to see patients in such short intervals. Again, I could talk again and again and again, but the point I'm trying to make here is that I didn't leave patient care just for myself and my happiness. I left because I could no longer make patients happy the way I knew that I could.
2: It's interesting to flip that again, though, on its side. And I don't want to go deeply into this conversation, but would it have been so wrong if you left patient care because it was no longer fulfilling your own happiness? And that's Ooh, I
0: love that.
2: that's something to really think about. I know for me, I felt like I could still be an effective physician, but I also felt like I lost my humanity. That thing, that beautiful thing that I thought I had slowly got squelched in medical school residency and then the practicing of medicine. And when I looked in the mirror, I was no longer the person who I valued. I had become the one thing I thought was my goal And instead of being this warm, empathic, open physician, I was this cold, siloed, alone physician. And it was the practice and the education of becoming what I became that did that to me. And I only realized to get back in touch with my humanity that I had to leave it on some level to get back in touch with who I was. And maybe there are other ways to touch people's lives the way you have, for instance, By helping doctors and other professions get back in touch with their branding and their social media, I want to use this as an episode to circle back on the second part of that thread, which is if physicians or other professionals are looking to build a brand and to use social media more effectively, what are the first steps?
0: First of all, it decides it matters if you want to do it alone or with someone like a social media coach. Obviously, it's easier with a social media coach, but it's more costly, right? So it depends how quickly and how much handholding you want to have done in terms of how you want to step forward from a financial perspective. If you have the money and you'd rather sort of do it a little bit quicker with someone's help, then I suggest doing it with a coach. If you're cool with that like exploratory, like discovery phase and doing it yourself, then you do it alone. The first steps are really creating that brand. Because no matter what you end up doing, you want to start dabbling online in order to discover what works and what doesn't. And you've got to actually have presence. Like you can't really dabble in Facebook unless you've got a Facebook account. Now you could do it. There's a lot of nuances there. You could do it from a private perspective and just have your personal account. But you can also open up your page and start experimenting. So it's about figuring out the steps first laying it out, laying out what your brand is, what it's going to be across social media, doing the research that it's available, taking out the property, right? Renting out the property and then building a foundation by looking around, seeing what houses you like, and then defining your own, starting to dabble, having that experience. And then accepting the fact that it may not be perfect the first time around, but that it's going to be built on this foundation of your good intentions and your intentions to build something that makes you happy.
2: Donna Coriel, it's been a pleasure having you on. I certainly see you as a kindred soul. Our stories are very similar. Why don't you tell us where we can find you and what is up next in your life?
0: So my two spaces are my personal brand which is Dr Coriel I am branded across social media as exactly what you what you hear Dr Coriel D R C O R I E L You can find me at drcoriel.com and any social media platform under that handle, Dr. Coriel. And then I've got the greater brand, which is a company that I started called SoMeDocs, standing for doctors on social media. Same thing. You could find us across social media at the handle SoMeDocs or at SoMeDocs.com. And I welcome anybody that just is curious about either what I'm doing or how they can grow their own brand or explore the next steps in life, especially outside of medicine or even in medicine to grow practices there is so much that you can do with the online world and social media so thank you so much for having me on
2: this has been the earn and invest podcast on behalf of myself doc g i'd like to thank donna Coriel. that's a wrap There's no question that I got a lot of feedback on episode 23 with Pete Adeny. I saw it especially on our Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. And this was the episode about his controversial tweet where he equated masks with barbells and bicycles and salads. It's a controversial take, which he's had for quite a long time. And I got two different types of feedback. The first was in support. Uncle Busser said, Really well set up and excellent to hear Pete's thought process and get to know him better. Twitter can be a single dimension area with people just looking for trouble. And other people like Dave Blobaum saying, Dang, this was a great episode on so many levels. My favorite part, civil and respectful disagreement. Not easy for most people to do. This episode sets a fine example. There are also a lot of people who are rather upset with his response and his tweet. Jim Kirkwood said, Saw the comment too and was a little taken aback. When he said comment, he's talking about the tweet. Especially as a public health guy who has been responding to this for the past few months, Definitely presented it as a false choice and was clumsy way to use one's soapbox. It also reminds me of a different podcast a few months back on the subject of financial independence where the host questioned the need for vaccines. These folks are people and not experts on everything. and They should be careful about what they comment on and how it's said. Liz Shaper said, like Uncle Ben says in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Or was that Stan Lee that said that originally? So the point being is that there are a lot of differing opinions. These are deeply held beliefs, whether you believe in wearing a mask or not, whether you believe in the freedom of expressing those opinions on a tweet and what the blowback should be if you say something that's offensive to other people. Well, that's something we decided to delve into a little here today. I'm going to be joined in a moment with Vigilante from iVigilante.com. Him and I agree almost on nothing when it comes to the COVID pandemic, and yet I've had him on the podcast before. He's a smart guy. We've agreed mostly on everything when it comes to financial independence. So I thought I'd have him on and we would discuss this idea of how to disagree and yet still be agreeable. So we're here with Vigilante from iVigilante.com, who recently was listening to episode 123, which was with Mr. Money Mustache about his comments about COVID that set off a little bit of a tweet storm. Vigilante, first and foremost, tell me what you thought about his tweet and why you contacted me.
1: Oh, uh, Thanks for having me on, Doc. Uh, I was struck by Pete's tweet before I even saw Uh, that you did a podcast with him. uh, And I I don't think I posted a response to it for a few days after, and then I just said, thank you. Pete's tweet struck me because in my mind, he was just kind of opening a discussion about things that have a greater impact on your chances of surviving the pandemic than things that people tend to focus on. And really that's in keeping with his general message of his entire blog he's always discussing circle of control, circle of concern, and how to differentiate between the two. Uh, So I I thought uh, that was a a fine tweet, nothing wrong with it, nothing particularly frightening, but the response was very interesting. And as, as we go on today, I'm sure we're going to talk about different things that are, are a bad idea to do uh, in, in in discourse generally. And I'm going to do one of them right now. I'm going to commit a, a fallacy on, <laughs> on my way. You're going to commit right at the outset. <laughs> huh? Go, go right, for it. Right, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's a bad idea to stereotype everyone that you're arguing with. But I'm going to do that because uh, I, I saw most of the responses that were negative to Pete's tweet seem to be of the variety of he's anti-mask, he's not giving proper respect to masks. Neither is true. I mean, he was just talking about something that carries greater weight uh, and, and, and openly said, well, yeah, of course, wear your mask. <laughs> so I just thought that was a very interesting little case study in uh, Twitter discourse.
2: The reason why I contacted Pete and decided that this would make a really great episode with him is I realized very quickly that the number of letters and words we can put in a tweet is quite misleading. So it's really easy to see the basics of an argument without any of the nuance. So when I saw people's response to it, my immediate thought was, there's a much deeper and more complicated conversation to have Let's get him onto a different format where we can talk for 30 or 45 minutes about it. Now, I will tell you that my second response was, I don't necessarily agree with this at all. And as you heard when you listened to the episode, there are plenty of things he said that I didn't agree with. And it'd also be safe to say that you and I probably disagree on some of the science. Both of us have spent a lot of time thinking about this, both professionally and personally. It's interesting that we're in this place and it kind of begs the question how do we have these deeper conversations with people who we don't see things at all similarly on the other hand I feel connected to you you've been on the episode before I feel like you're a smart guy the kind of guy I'd like to hang out to if we lived in the same city so like I feel good feelings towards you I on the other you. <laughs> On the other hand, I know that this is something that we don't agree with at all. And if mm-hmm. our only interactions were in quick tweets, we would probably feel very negatively about each other. Like, yeah. how do we bridge that gap?
1: Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give two more disclaimers. And uh, to answer your question really shortly, first of all, I don't really know exactly how to bridge that gap. Uh, I have ideas, but I don't really know. And second of all, I think the best thing I've found to bridge that gap is exactly this. It is this long form discussion. It's sitting down like friends over a beer. Uh, Not that I'm allowed to drink beer right now. I'm at work, but (laughs) (laughs) if you could, it is there. Right, right. So the, the two other disclaimers I'll make are, first of all, I have no background in psychology. So when we're talking about how to come to a consensus and all of that, it's not my area. It's just, uh, I'm actually, I'm a lawyer. I'm the opposite of the person you want to talk to. <laughs> uh, if we're talking to a lawyer about being agreeable, that sounds like a terrible idea. But it, it is something that I do focus on in my practice. Um, half of what I do is divorces. And so in those divorces, I'm always trying to convince people to kind of find that middle ground, settle, get it over with and stop paying me money a lot of people don't listen to me and they just want to keep paying me money, but it's, it's, it's a bad idea. You want to be agreeable in a divorce. It's to everyone's benefit, especially children, if there are children. Uh, but anyway, before I get too far off track, the other disclaimer is I don't have any background in medicine either. So I'm sure if you wanted to stump me on uh, COVID related topics, you probably could. But the reason I have a, a very personal interest in this, other than the fact that we're all living through a pandemic right now, is that I'm working on litigation related to COVID. Um, so I'm, I'm involved in litigation against the Pennsylvania governor, uh, and I'm talking to world-renowned epidemiologists and infectious disease experts and economists every day. Um, I'm trying to figure out what, how to best respond within the constitutional bounds afforded to our governor and to our Secretary of Health. And that's what we're asking for, is, is to basically peel back some of the regulations and leave some of them in place. Um, so that's, that's why I, I have, I think, a, a greater depth of knowledge in this area than most people, but probably nowhere near what medical professionals have. So whatever I say, take it with a grain of salt.
2: <laughs> now, you know, on the surface, there were certainly some people who looked at Pete's tweet and said, okay, that's offensive, and that was it, and they moved away. Mm-hmm. For the rest of us, you were talking about some of the nuance, actually, of why you understand a little bit about COVID, right? This is something Mm -hmm. you've spent a lot of time professionally looking into, talking to experts, et cetera. Hundreds of hours. Do you think it's possible to relay that type of nuance on Twitter or on Facebook, or is it a losing battle right away? Because a lot of these people we are not going to sit down and drink a beer with, we're probably not going to get on Skype or Zoom and talk to them for an hour. So should we even bother? Like, this is a big question I come up in
1: my own brain with a lot. Like,
2: can we actually make headway in those platforms?
1: That's a fantastic question. Uh, again, despite my lack of qualifications to answer, I would say is an obvious no. I, I don't think Twitter is a very good place to talk. I think it's pretty much the worst place to have a conversation. It's a great place to share a meme, share a joke, uh, share a video, or or even the occasional important piece of information that is a short piece of information like oh hey this person is uh this person was just indicted uh, if people want to know about that if you want to know about jeffrey epstein or something <laughs> that that can get out on twitter quickly it's a good source of a quick factoid it's a bad place for nuance pretty much the worst place you can imagine for nuance and nuance is what you need to answer these complex questions where there's really reasonable room for disagreement like for instance the response to covid Um, There's a lot of data that has to be taken into account. There's no simple answers like, oh, hey, this X number of people are going to die if we don't do this thing. It's never that simple. There's always going to be externalities to that uh, proposed solution where, well, maybe it will harm this group or it will uh, do this to the economy that will harm these people in the future. Or or maybe it uh, doesn't even really accomplish the goal you want it to accomplish because it offers some perverse incentive to someone. Like I I don't know if this were true, but this is the first example that popped into my mind. I heard that treatment with ventilators is actually not a good idea for a lot of COVID patients. Um, If that's true, uh, then there was a perverse incentive offered by paying hospitals additional money to use those ventilators. Uh, Then you were actively harming COVID patients uh, in, in the pursuit of money. Uh, with money, which was needed by the hospitals partially because of the lockdowns, because there were fewer people going to hospitals for treatment for other ailments. So that kind of nuance, it gets lost in Twitter completely. Do
2: you think if we had more of these sit down conversations, and I guess I'll ask you in your personal experience, do you feel like you're changing minds when you do sit down side to side with someone, let's say your neighbor, and you're talking about these things? do you actually feel like you make headway like you see their opinion a little more they see your opinion a little more like maybe minds will be changed if we have more of this long form conversation
1: so uh, one example during divorce proceedings whenever the emails get a little bit too harsh between counsels between parties whatever i like to actually meet in person with both attorneys both parties uh for, for multiple reasons. One, I, I like to have uh, my spreadsheet available and visible to everyone and change it in person so everyone can see the effect of some agreement or some decision, uh, you know, live. But uh, more importantly, because we then have to look each other in the eye and we have the opportunity to explain why we want what we want. And uh, you get to realize, well, oh, maybe the other side isn't out to just take everything I own. They actually just want to make sure that they're able to survive when they're uh, 70 and retired and, and you know, no longer able to be employed. You know, they're just trying to take care of their future here. Uh, so you get to get that kind of nuance from an in-person meeting or a podcast that you miss a lot of times in emails, too, uh, just like Twitter, where things are shorter and quicker. Uh, There are a lot of lawyers who actually like to communicate by letter for the reason that emails are often sent off much more quickly. There's nothing quicker than a tweet or an email. A letter at least gives you a moment to reflect before you drop it in the mailbox, you know. Uh, and that's that moment is really important, and uh, in person is even better. You get to ask questions of one another right away before you make any assumptions about what they really intended
2: let 's broaden this out. Do you think we 'll come to a consensus as a country on covid i've noticed that a lot of the smart people I know when they talk to can be at diametrically opposed opinions. I know a lot of experts, right, so we have experts world renowned who are diametrically opposed now or even sometime in the distant future, do you think we'll ever come down to
1: saying, okay, this is exactly what it was? I'm quite pessimistic that we'll ever have uh, full agreement on anything. Uh, you know, human beings just don't operate that way. Uh, the, the tribal identities that have formed uh, where you're, you're pro lockdown or you're anti lockdown, uh, Those may subside a bit with time, but uh, then it's a question for epidemiologists to answer, I think, about whether they can parse the data that exists and convince enough people that it was really one way or another. Um, And I'm a bit pessimistic about ever having any kind of solid conclusion there either uh, because of some problems with data collecting in the United States. You know, I was, I was just talking about that today. Uh, and, and for example, the tribalism that's going on with the COVID stuff, I, I've, I've seen an uproar with the Trump administration's decision to take uh, data and report it to the uh, Health and Human Services Department instead of the CDC directly, which the CDC is a part of. Uh, but they were they were moving it up the ladder, essentially. And personally, I'm skeptical of any kind of concentration of power like that. I don't like it, but I saw an uproar about it whenever they decided to hide some data, some data about active cases. Then they were corrected on that. They were called out on it. They corrected it immediately. They've put that data back out there in public. That's great. A little bit scary, but good Good ultimate decision and outcome. But the, the, tribalism, the tribalism thing becomes obvious when you look at uh, our governor in Pennsylvania has prevented the same information, active case information. It used to be available on our dashboard. It's no longer available on our dashboard, but none of my friends who would complain about the Trump administration doing that will complain about the Wolf administration doing that. (laughs) And I say, hey guys, epidemiologists need that uh, information in either case. Uh, This doesn't need to be a partisan thing. You want as much information out there as you can possibly have. And, And that kind of mistake, I just, I don't know if that's going to go away. I, I think tensions fade with time, but uh, this will just be that kind of thing that hangs in the back of your mind and you, you always think of someone as a, an anti-master or a sheep, which isn't helpful at all. Yeah, the,
2: the framework that you're talking about when you bring up that example of the data in Pennsylvania versus the data nationally, it's amazing how much nuance and difficulty there is even in that discussion. You use the word tribalism, on social media there would be some people who would take offense to that word itself and say that it's denigrating to Native Americans and would immediately be fairly negative feeling about your comment just because you use that word, a word that I've used quite often and now have just become aware of the significance of it of the negative connotation.
1: Cut you off right there for a second. I had never heard that before. So uh, one of the things that helps discourse is admitting that you don't know something or you don't know uh, or, or you were wrong about something. I've never heard that. You just taught me something that could potentially be valuable. I probably will still use that word out of habit sometimes uh, or because I don't really know what the connection would be. I don't know if it has its roots in Referencing Native Americans, but if it does Now yeah, let's move on from that word. I didn't know that was an issue Yeah, it you know
2: someone. I think it was Tanya Hester who said in one of my episodes we were talking about People of color and black lives matter and how some tweets got certain people in trouble And one thing she said is it's not usually the tweet. That's the problem. It's the cover-up and what hmm. you did was in a perfect example of having what I think is a very open conversation. I mentioned the word you said, oh, I had never heard that. That's something I definitely need to think about. You did the exact opposite, right? There wasn't a cover up. There wasn't a, oh, you're being crazy. You know, what's up with all this political correctness? It was more like, oh, I had never thought of that angle. And all of us have used words without even thinking of them that are part Mm -hmm. of our lexicon, which when you go back and start thinking about it, you could say, oh yeah, that probably isn't the nicest word For certain populations. But it's the ability to have that open conversation where you're not offended if someone points out something you said or did, but more to, hey, that's interesting. Let me think about that. How does that fit into my understanding of what's going on, et cetera? And, And to be
1: fair, I do have to think about that because I might not stop using the word tribalism. I might decide that that's just kind of. PC bullshit, you know, I I often come to that conclusion, but I have
2: no idea about that. I am considered that. But at least you're open to the idea of, let me think about what this is. Let me think about the other people it may affect. And is it a bad thing? it not a bad thing. At least the idea is there's thoughtfulness there, right? And then if you decide to use, for instance, a word, not even that word, but you decide to use a word that other people take offense at, then at least they know that you put the thought into it and then can decide whether to listen to you or not based on your opinion on
1: that. I would would never reflexively respond to Tanya Hester that way and say, oh, it's not, it's just PC garbage. (laughs) I (laughs) often disagree with her, but I would never confront her with that. That would be a mistake. (laughs) And, And, but the idea
2: again, is this idea of opening a conversation, which comes back to our point in the first place that it's really hard to have those kind of conversations on Twitter yeah. or, or Facebook which begs the question why do we do it and i am just as guilty as everyone else i occasionally will see a comment especially on facebook and i'm like that's just wrong and right <laughs> and so i throw something in the comments And as I'm doing it, I realize that it's not going to convince anyone. It's not going to change their mind. And they're going to write something back, which is then going to piss me off. And I'm going to feel bad. And then, of course, I'm going to write something back. And we're not going to make any headway. Uh, So I'm going to try to stop that behavior.
1: (laughs) Well, you know what? I don't know if I want you to stop. Uh, Let me try to change your mind on that a little bit. Uh, Okay, go ahead. Because (laughs) I... I... I will say something that sounds like a stereotype, everybody says this, and most people who say it are full of crap, but I don't usually post about politics on social media. I very rarely do. I have for the last several months about COVID nearly every day, <laughs> but that's uh, unusual for me. Most of my things on Facebook and whatnot are just pictures of you know me and my daughter. It's not anything relating to uh, politics. But when I do post that stuff, I'm not posting it to try to convince the person I'm talking to. I know that's going to fail. Nine times, 99 times out of 100, that's going to fail. You're not going to make any headway arguing with someone on the internet. Uh, But what you can do is someone who's interested in that conversation and can see it, they might be sitting on the fence. They might not be sure what to believe. They might not be sure, for instance, if you're going to argue about the efficacy of masks in covid uh, which personally, I think they do have some uh, use. I, if, if someone's sitting on the fence about that, you arguing with someone whose mind you're not going to change, might change that fence sitter's mind, might push them one way or the other over the fence, uh, which I just realized now is kind of a graphic visual, but <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, it, might, it might help that person learn something. So I don't really post it for the person I'm talking to. I post it for the, the readers, the listeners.
2: It's an interesting thought. And certainly I've made a point of not snoozing people. I've made a point of not unfollowing people who I normally would follow, let's say, for their financial news, but then they start putting in political or COVID stuff that I strongly disagree with. And the reason why I won't snooze or unfollow them is I feel like I have to be exposed to the viewpoints that I don't agree with. I feel like I have to know how people are thinking. And if there is clearly something I'm thinking wrong, I'd like to see what the other argument is. So at least I can think more in depth about it. Does it end up changing my mind? Usually not. But I guess for me personally, I will do probably less commenting and more listening and reading. Uh, But I, I like that point you made is that maybe... You and I can have an argument on Facebook, and you and I will still think the same way, but it gives a lot more of that kind of nuance to other people who are watching and reading along.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, things on social media, that's where a lot of people get their their information from today. It's, it's one of the main sources, if not the main source of information, uh, especially for younger people. They see what their friends or their family have posted on social media, and they go from there. Uh, maybe they read it, maybe they don't even read it. But when they're seeing that argument, it helps them, you know, parse what's what's real and what's not. And it's a terrible way to get your news. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that, but it is a way that happens. So the more good information I can put out there, uh, the, the better I feel my friends and family are going to do when they see it.
2: The website is ivigilante.com. Vigilante, thank you for helping us really find this path of disagreeing without having to be disagreeable. It's something I think we all can learn. There is always a place for confrontation. But confrontation also doesn't get us anywhere if we're not willing to take the time and the energy to think deeply about what other people are saying who don't agree with us. So I think this is the beginning of a conversation. The episode was 123. Mr. Money Mustache talks about COVID and his notorious tweet. We will see how this all turns out, but I'm hoping that uh, we all remain friends as time goes on.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. And I I want to mention something about Pete. Uh, I, I was showed Mr. Money Mustache by my older brother, Pete. And uh for the first year or two, I was convinced that Mr. My Mustache was my older brother. I could not figure <laughs> out any distinguishing factors. It's hilarious. The the, the 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 main reason I know that Pete Aidney is not just an alias for my brother is that he they they vehemently disagree on COVID as well.
2: <laughs> Interesting. Who knew that would be the one thing that would separate your brother
1: from Pete Aidney? <laughs> <laughs> They they used to be the same person.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that kind of story before. So thank you for that. No problem. This was written September 13th, 2011. It's called Why I Write and Some Medical Blogosphere History. You're not going to recognize a bunch of these names, but they're from 2011, and these are the people who were probably blogging maybe before you were into this, maybe not. It was the sight meter, the damn sight meter. I couldn't take my mind off it as I sped down the highway to the hospital. The sun inched over the horizon, and a blur of headlights swarmed and then passed my car. I should have never put a sight meter on my blog. I didn't need to stare down the barrel of cold, incontrovertible proof. I already knew that my post disappeared into the ether as fast as I pushed the publish button. But I sure didn't need confirmation. I remember back to when I started blogging. I built a website selling artwork. I called it Fine Art Doctor. It was a hobby to fulfill the emptiness from those early years of practice. The blog was a companion to the website. I wrote about various art-related topics, but it was flat. Uninflamed by the controversies of the art world, I searched the internet for more. What I came across was a well-known blogger named Grunt Doc. When I surfed his site, I knew I was on to something. I left a comment on one of his posts and started to change the direction of my blog to focus on medical topics. It was 2006, and the grand dame of the medical blogosphere was a woman named Moof. Moof followed from Grunt Doc and introduced me along with Dr. Anonymous, a guy named Mike Sevilla, to the community. It was an inspiring time. I remember reading the likes of Charity Doc and Dr. Charles. The blog that ate Manhattan was on a hiatus, and Kevin M.D. was still reigned supreme, but in a slightly lesser way. I turned the radio up as Adele was playing in the background. Her voice, sweet and soft, was becoming bigger and more powerful each second. In the beginning, I had quite a following. I started with medical narratives and poetry. Eventually, I graduated to writing fictional stories. I celebrated with each comment. Sometimes I got as many as 10 per post. I felt creative and liberated like part of a community. I even got some FaceTime on Kevin MD. Sure, I would sometimes fall off the bandwagon and go days without posting, maybe even weeks, but I would always come back. That is until the morning I had a car accident. I wasn't hurt, but I was shaken. And then I arrived at my office to turn on the computer and find that my blog was gone. A WordPress glitch. I finally got the content back weeks later, but it was imported to a new web address. With a snap of a finger, I lost my blog, I lost my community, and I lost my voice. Adele is now barely audible. Her voice vibrates with charisma, but soft, emotional. I migrated over to Blogger with little fanfare and little following. I would have loved to be able to brag about my stamina, but I couldn't. My blog had been mute for weeks or sometimes months at a time. Posts came and went, sometimes barely audible. So why did I do it? Why did I keep writing in such a public way to an audience that all but disappeared? My mind slowed, my shoulders relaxed, and I listened to the music. I hate to turn up out of the blue uninvited, but I couldn't stay away. I couldn't fight it. I hoped you'd see my face and that you'd be reminded that for me, it isn't over. As I listened to the lyrics, my emotions swelled. A few words masterfully twisted and tangled with a little melody brought up such vivid feelings, snapshots, memories, It reminded me why. I write because I envy people like Adele. I envy the master craftsmen who, with a twist and flourish, can reach down deep into our souls and produce something different in each and every one of us. I yearn to use a few words to paint a million pictures on each reader's private canvas, to pull out from them that which they secretly want to expose but hold fiercely close to their hearts, to teach, to learn. I would write if there was no blog or paper or pen. I would scrawl my awkward musings in the sand with a stick. I would write because I have to, even if no one's listening.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance.